0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. A few
1: years after I became a believer in the Lord Jesus, after I discovered that Jesus is the Messiah, I decided to go to church. I entered into the Christian world and I look for ways that perhaps I might be able to participate and maybe make some contributions to be a part of the Christian community, the body of Christ that was associated in this way. I went into the Christian world, and when I visited a few churches, I had a little bit of a culture shock. It was a little bit of a challenge to learn the new language that people were using there and to be accustomed to the different religious practices that people were involved in and to understand why people were doing the things that they were doing. It was a little bit difficult to hear music that I had never heard before or to sing songs that I had never sung before. It was quite a bit of a culture shock. And so it was suggested to me that I consider going to a Messianic congregation. There were Messianic congregations at that time, These congregations were designed in order to be sort of a transition point, sort of like a halfway house for Jews who discovered that Jesus is the Messiah, to give them a little bit of a transition. And so I went and I visited a few, and eventually I did find a few leaders, a few teachers who were heading up these congregations who did have some exposure to Judaism in a profound way previously. I found it very unusual to find someone in leadership who really did have a rabbinical background. But I did find one person after a while, and I had a wonderful conversation with them. It was really nice to be able to sit down and talk about the transitions that we were personally experiencing as we were growing and maturing in our faith. We had an opportunity to share a lot of stories that in many ways only we could relate to just because we were a part of a different culture, a part of a different community, a part of a different people. And one of the things I found quite interesting was when this individual told me that they were disturbed about some of the things that had been happening in their congregation, that they set up this congregation for the purpose of reaching out to Jews, mainly. That was what they were hoping that they could do by providing a replacement for the service of the synagogue. They structured their meeting in a similar way as a very Reformed synagogue would structure their meeting, and so... It was sort of a transition to go from rabbinical Orthodox Judaism to the absence of it entirely, I suppose. But they explained to me that even though they really wanted to set this up in order to attract Jews, for the most part, they attracted Gentiles. They attracted people who were not Jewish at all, and they came because of the different style of worship. Sometimes they were there because the teaching was a little different, but for the most part, the goal that the leader had was not being achieved because he did not see very many Jews come through his congregation. And when they did, they normally wouldn't stay for very long. He would never hear from them again. But those who were coming who were not part of Judaism, those who were recognized as Gentiles, he told me that he saw a strange phenomenon take place quite often. He explained it this way. He said, you know, I have these people, they come to me And I tell them about Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, and they believe in him, they get saved, and then I disciple them, and then I marry them, I might find a spouse for them, and then they might be involved in the leadership in some way, they might be making contributions in the church that help others become a part of the congregation, they might facilitate a number of activities in order to build the community as a group of people who are actively involved in each other's lives. And then shortly after that, they convert to Judaism. This is what he said. He said that this is a very common occurrence, that this happens quite often, more often than he would like, that's for sure. And he was very disturbed about that. And you know, over the years, I've discovered that this isn't very unusual. This does happen quite a bit. It's just that people don't want to talk about it. They just don't want to let people know that this is a common problem, that people will go to these congregations that are designed to help Jews step out of rabbinical Judaism and enter into the New Covenant in some way. But what happens is that a lot of people enter into these congregations, they step out of the New Covenant, and then they convert to Judaism. The transition seems to happen in the other direction, where people eventually abandon the faith. They may abandon the Lord Jesus entirely. They may no longer identify themselves as a Christian, and they might identify themselves as a Jew, or they might not. This is not unusual. It does happen quite a bit. And so he was explaining this to me, and I couldn't help but think, you know, after listening to you talk, and after listening to the sermons that you've been giving, and listening to you express your faith and the things that you have been learning and the things that you have been growing in, in terms of your understanding of the scriptures, I'm kind of surprised that it doesn't happen more often than what you suggest. I would think that you probably would find more people who would be inspired to do this because, for the most part, that's what you teach. You teach rabbinical Judaism in many ways. You teach people to go under the law, not necessarily for salvation, but instead now You teach it in order to provide people with an opportunity to be blessed by God. You know, if they obey his commandments, then he'll bless them in return. And if they don't, well, then he might withhold these blessings in their life. And and I believe that these people are probably just being a little bit more honest than you are. Now, I did not tell that to this individual because it would not have been a constructive thing to say at that time. But in my heart, that's what I was wondering. I was thinking that maybe this is the case. And I should probably spend some time looking into this a little bit more to see if what I suspect is actually true. And over time, in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, I discovered that for the most part, people were converting to Judaism because they were more sincere than the leadership were about what the leadership was actually teaching. The leadership often says these things subtly. But the congregation instead, the members, that is, they took it more seriously. They really did. And the end result of that was definitely to lead an individual to convert to Judaism. And so this is the point. The point is that the law makes a division between people. It really does, because the law demands obedience. It was given by God for that purpose. He gave the law to say, here it is. You obey it. You do it. Now, of course, He gave the law initially to the children of Israel. And before that, the children of Israel were part of the Egyptian empire. They were slaves in Egypt. And when they left Egypt, the Lord gave them a law. He gave them a law to live by. And this law defined everything about their life. It defined their political structure, their economic structure. It defined their relational structure in terms of how they would relate to one another. The law was given... For the purpose of creating a new nation. And so you had the nation of Israel. And then you had everybody else. And there was a word that was applied to everyone else. The goyim. Goyim is a Hebrew word that means other nations. Nations that are not us. You had the nation of Israel. And then you had the goyim. Which is translated as Gentiles. So you have the law that defines Who is an Israelite defines who is a Jew. And without the law, there would be no Israel. Not in this sense. There would be no Jew and there would be no Gentile because the other nations didn't look at each other and say, look at us, we're a bunch of Gentiles. They did not look at each other or address each other or speak of each other from Israel's point of view. They didn't see each other in that way. They saw themselves as who they were in terms of their nationalistic identity, not in terms of being someone other than the nation of Israel. This is very important to see because if you have the law, if you have the law, then you by default have a Jew and you have a Gentile. But if you do not have the law, then you do not have this distinction. For the Gentiles, they may look at the Jews in a unique way, but they are not going to refer to themselves amongst each other as if they are a single classification of people. Whereas from Israel's point of view, they would have looked at all of the other nations as a single classification. Now, the reason why I'm explaining this is because in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, there are certain classifications that are described. In verse 26, it says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He creates a classification of someone who is a child of God, a son of God, and someone who is not. Now, what do defines a person as a child of God. Is it the law that defines a child of God? No, absolutely not. There is no place in the law where it says, if you obey these commandments, you will be a child of God. It does say that you will be his people, but that's not the same thing. I'm talking about an individual who is a child of God who has inheritance rights through the kingdom of heaven. In the law, you could be a people of God who has inheritance rights in the land of Israel. But to be a son of God in the way that Paul is describing, to have inheritance rights in heaven, that's something different, and that was never defined in the law. It was never defined there. Instead, you have an Israelite who has a physical inheritance. This is a very important distinction to understand, that in order to become a child of God, it has to be outside of the law. Now, our God established a new covenant. The law was described as the old covenant, and he established a new covenant, and through that covenant, you could become a child of God. But that is separate, that is distinct from the old covenant. Again, in verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, baptism was established originally by the Pharisees for the purpose of converting a Gentile to Judaism. But to be baptized into Christ, to be baptized into the Messiah, means that you have gone through a conversion from who you once were to who you will be now, which will be totally different from who you once were. Now, if you were a Jew and you were converted to believe in Christ as your Messiah, to become a child of God, then that means if you were once a Jew, you are no longer a Jew. The same thing if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. If you were a Gentile and you believe that Christ is the Messiah... And you are baptized into him, and this baptism, I believe, refers to the spiritual baptism of the restoration of the Holy Spirit. The series that I produced on the subject of baptism addresses this in detail. I would definitely like to encourage you to listen to that series if you haven't heard it. It's a very important subject, but in this case, I need to proceed in order to explain the purpose of this verse, which is to show you that you have been converted, You have been converted if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you believe that he is the Messiah, then you are no longer who you once were. This is the theme that he presents here at the end of Galatians chapter 3, continuing in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. Now, let me stop there for just a second. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, this is a clear statement, this is a very clear statement that explains, without question, that there is no Jew and there is no Greek, therefore, there is no law, because it is the law that defines who is a Jew and who is not a Jew. In this context, the word Greek refers to a Gentile or anybody else, Greek or Roman or whoever. The idea here is that the law defines who these individuals are, but because the law has been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus and he has provided us with a new covenant to enter into, when we enter into that, there is no longer a Jew. Now, why would this be so important to say? Why would this be important to explain? It would be critical to explain because when the council met, when the apostles and the elders met in Jerusalem to discuss the question of does a Gentile need to be circumcised? Does a Gentile need to live according to the law of Moses? What did they assemble for? They assembled to distinguish between the Jew and the Gentile. When Paul says there is no longer a Jew or a Gentile, when he says that, then he is saying directly, that these questions that are being raised, these arguments that are being made, these topics of discussion that are coming out of the law have no place in our life anymore. In the church at Jerusalem, it was, of course, very important to them because they had not yet fully embraced the implications of the new covenant to the extent where they could say with conviction there is no longer a Jew or a Gentile? If they could, if they believed that, then what were they doing talking about the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles? What we are going to tell the Jews to do and what we are going to tell the Gentiles to do or not do. Why would they be having those discussions if they knew there was no longer any Jew or Gentile? The only way that there can be no Jew and no Gentile is if these people no longer live according to the law, either the presence of it or the absence of it. You see, I'm not telling you this in order to encourage you to totally dump the law. We need the law. The law has its place. It has its purpose. It's just that we need to use it for the purpose that it was given for. Unfortunately, there are people who still want to use it for a purpose that it was not given for. That's the obstacle that we have to get through. When he says that there is no slave or free, continuing again in verse 28, where it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about? He's talking about these definitions that we establish that take us away from the reality that we are now a child of God, we now receive an inheritance. You know, when he says slave or free, that means... That the slave who is a believer has full access to all of the capital resources that are available through the kingdom of heaven, just as someone who is a master, who is not a slave, has access to all the capital resources of God. That is what it means to say that there is neither slave nor free nor master, anyone like that in the gospel in Christ there is no one like that because everyone has access to everything that God has for them to say that there is neither male nor female means that the inheritance rights are available to everyone whether they are a male or a female you see in the law the male received the inheritance Only the sons received an inheritance with the exception of if there are no sons. And if there are no sons, then the daughters could receive the inheritance, but with certain specific stipulations, such as they could never marry outside of that tribe. Whereas if they were a son, if they were a man, they could marry outside of that tribe. There were distinctions in the law, and those distinctions were very important in order to accomplish the purposes that God had with regards to the law, but in the new covenant, the inheritance is for every child, and there is no stipulation, there is no distinction, there are no qualifications. There is nothing but the giving of all that our God has for us. Again, in verse 28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Why does he say this? Why does he put this in here? You've got to understand the conflict. The conflict that requires Paul to write this to address the conflict. The conflict was between the Apostle Paul and the gospel that he was teaching, the Galatians, and the people who were coming from Jerusalem to teach them the gospel that was being taught in Jerusalem. That was the conflict. And what were these people saying to the people in Galatia who were coming from Jerusalem? Those who were coming from Jerusalem, what were they telling the Galatians? They were telling them that on behalf of Abraham, in the name of Abraham, they must live according to the Mosaic law. Paul says, in the name of Abraham, on behalf of Abraham... In verse 29, again, this is Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. What he means is, is that if you do not embrace the promise that God made to Abraham with regards to the seed, with regards to the Messiah, if you don't embrace the fulfillment of that, and you instead embrace the law as your way of life, instead of the Messiah as your way of life. That's what he's saying. He's saying, by default, if you listen to, and if you embrace, and if you believe what these people are telling you with regards to the law and its place in your life, if you're going to believe that, then by default, you are not Christ's, and you are not Abraham's seed, and you are not an heir according to the promise. Why? Because the law defines an heir according to works. The grace of God, the gospel of God defines an heir according to the promise, and the law defines an heir according to your works. And you can't have it both ways. You have to decide what kind of an heir do you want to be? What kind of an inheritance do you want? Do you want the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you as your inheritance? Do you want the living God resurrecting you from the dead, making you alive? Do you want him to have a personal, interactive relationship with you as your inheritance? Or do you just want one of his cows? Do you just want to have more flour in your kneading bowl? Do you just want to have an opportunity to win in war? Things like that, because that's what the law promises. The law says nothing about the restoration of the Holy Spirit. The gospel, according to the new covenant, provides the Holy Spirit as an inheritance. And so you must decide what kind of heir do you want to be, because you can't have it both ways. You can't say that you have a claim to the inheritance defined by the law Without being a Jew, you've got to be a Jew or an Israelite. You've got to be a Jew in order to be an inheritor, an heir, according to the law in the land. But when you embrace the gospel, you are resurrected into being a child of God to the extent that there is no Jew and there is no Gentile. You have to be willing to let go of your inheritance rights in the land of Israel if you're going to be this kind of a creation, this kind of a person. Now, for most of you who are listening to me, you probably have no inheritance rights in the land of Israel. But I have inheritance rights in the land of Israel. What about me? I have rights being a Jew that I should have legitimate rights. I have a claim to be able to receive the inheritance of the land of Israel. I should have access to that land. I should be able to put my stuff in that land. I should be able to work that land. I should be able to live there and prosper there. I should be able to do that. But am I willing to let go of that inheritance? When I made the decision to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that was the decision I had to make. That was the law in the land of Israel at the time that I was saved. The law in the land of Israel was very simple. If I believed and confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, then I had to give up my entire inheritance rights to the land of Israel at that time. Do you understand how serious this is and where I'm coming from? I'm coming from the real thing, the real issue The real struggle here in this world, now and today, and I am telling you that giving up the inheritance, giving up being an heir according to the flesh, according to the law, according to the law that God gave, giving that up is nothing in comparison to what I have gained in being a child of God, an heir of the promise, an heir of the Messiah, and having the inheritance that he has already given to me in Christ. There is no comparison, absolutely no comparison whatsoever. Now, of course, when I was first confronted with this, it was a real struggle. It was a really serious decision for me. But today, now that I have grown to know and understand what I have in Christ, the decision is trivial. There is no decision as far as I'm concerned. This is the way things are. I will give up anything in this world, anything to be a child of God, to include being a Jew if necessary. If that's what it takes to be a child of God, then that's what it's going to be. If I have to give up my inheritance, which I have, by the way, my inheritance in this world in order to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, then that's the way it's going to be because he is the Messiah this is the truth, and there is no other. There is nothing else. There is nothing in this universe outside of my Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So I believe that this is the severity of what Paul is talking about. This is the severity. And you have to recognize the struggle that he was addressing when he wrote this letter in order to realize the implications of what he's saying, the implications of what people would believe, and the severity of it as well. Because what would happen if the Galatians stood up to these people and said, we don't care what you have to say to us. We are not going to live according to the law. We are not going to live according to the flesh either. We are going to live according to Christ. If they said that directly to those people, those people who are disturbing them, then those people would walk away, leave, reject them, and never have anything to do with them again. To take that kind of a position, to take that kind of a stand, will isolate you from people like that. And by default, this would have isolated the Galatians from those who were disturbing them. And I will continue with Galatians chapter 4 in the next broadcast.